open this study, which I have entitled Ichabod, let me state that our last tape, Doomsday Impersonation Number 2, has aroused so much discussion that we need to continue this study in depth. The prophet Ezekiel described the abomination of sun worship which took place within God's holy temple in the old Jerusalem. And God's last day prophet has stated that this will be repeated again in the Seventh-day Adventist church to the very letter. Let us pray. Our Father, baptize our minds with the Holy Spirit that we may be able to comprehend the magnitude of the struggle just ahead and be so filled with thy Spirit that we will be able to remain faithful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ichabod. The scriptural basis is found in Matthew 23, beginning with verse 37. This has to do with Christ's last heartbreak appeal to his chosen people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. These words of Christ to the priests and rulers struck terror to their hearts. Could it be that their magnificent temple, their national glory, would soon become a heap of ruin? But this prophetic description of Jerusalem was also a prophecy of our end time. So the lesson is for us. Listen carefully. As Jesus spoke these alarming words, divine pity cast one more lingering look upon the temple. And in a voice choked with anguish, Jesus exclaimed amid his tears, O Jerusalem! Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. These words were a part of the separation struggle, a farewell of the long-suffering love of Christ. For Israel, as a nation, had finally divorced herself from God. The national branches of the olive tree were broken off from the sustaining trunk. Jesus, looking for the last time upon the interior of the temple, said with mournful pathos, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Putting that in our words, he could have said, The glory of the Lord 
hath departed from Israel. Now, it may be a shock to some of you to learn that God's last day messenger wrote in the testimonies in the year 1882 regarding the remnant church. I'm reading from page 210 of volume 5. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel, meaning the church. As you study the context of the sealing message that she was presenting and describing, you find the end time of which she was speaking, spoke, speaking of. There was a small company that would be sighing and crying because of the abominations that would be found within God's remnant church. So she was actually speaking of the time in which you and I are now living. And that's alarming. But before we proceed, let's examine the meaning of the word glory. God's glory has always been equated with his character. In Eden, a glorious light enshrouded the holy pair, for they had been given a character pattern much like that of their creator, which they were given to develop and improve, so that their characters would be fashioned like unto God's character. But alas, they sinned, and in doing so, the glorious external light left them naked, which was a fit symbol of the loss of their godlike characters. For with the loss of the outward glory went the loss of sharing in the divine nature. But praise God, the loving Lord did not forsake them. Immediately, the plan of salvation was activated and character restoration was begun. Later on, in the day of Moses, God proposed to visibly dwell with his people. This is why the Shekinah glory abode in the most holy of the sanctuary. Moses was so enraptured with this glory that he wanted to see God fully. So he prayed, I'm reading Exodus 33:18. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God answered, verse 22, I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And now, notice these words, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. So you see, God's glory is equated with his character. Now, in the time of Eli, when he was the priest, the spirituality of the nation and the priesthood had become desperately corrupt. Eli's sons thought that by taking the glorious ark into battle that they could win a war with the Philistines. But in doing such, Eli's sons were killed and the ark captured. 
When Eli learned of this tragic news, he fell backward and broke his neck and died. The wife of Eli's son, on hearing that the ark was taken, gave hasty birth to a son. And as she died, she called the child Ichabod, which means the glory is departed from Israel. And indeed it had. For God's character, his glory was no longer mirrored in the character of his people. But again, praise God, he did not forsake his people. For he had raised up the child Samuel to lead his people back into an experience of becoming Christ-like in their daily living. Over and over through the following ancient centuries, God's people as a whole deserted him, but God never deserted his faithful few. When Solomon completed the temple in Jerusalem, God again visibly filled the temple with his glory. 1 Kings 8.11 The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And this glory remained in the Holy of Holies until the days of Jeremiah, when the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. This departure is visibly described by God's prophet as being similar to that which took place when Christ was to ascend to heaven after his resurrection. I'm reading from Desire of Ages, page 829. As the place of his ascension, Jesus chose the spot so often hallowed by his presence while he dwelt among men. Not Mount Zion, the place of David's city. Not Mount Moriah, the temple site, was to be thus honored. There Christ had been mocked and rejected. There the waves of mercy, still returning in a stronger tide of love, had been beaten back by hearts as hard as rock. Thence Jesus, weary and heart-burdened, had gone forth to find rest in the Mount of Olives. The holy Shekinah, in departing from the first temple, had stood upon the eastern mountain as if loath to forsake the chosen city. So Christ stood upon Olivet with yearning heart overlooking Jerusalem. Now, as we turn to the writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we find in type a pattern which will take place in our future. For in the book of Jeremiah, we discover the reason why the temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. It was because the people and their leaders utterly disregarded the Sabbath of the Lord so that the glory of God departed from Israel. I'm reading Jeremiah 17, beginning with verse 21. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gate of Jerusalem, 
neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. You see, at that time they were totally disregarding the Sabbath. They were not keeping it holy. They were carrying on the business like anybody else. I'm reading on. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. Then he went on. If ye will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall, be, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Now Jeremiah, sensing the coming destruction because of the apostasy in breaking the Sabbath, he removed the ark of God from the sanctuary, hiding it in a cave. In the book, Prophets and Kings, page 453, we read, Among the righteous still in Jerusalem, to whom have been made plain the divine purpose, were some, you notice, just a few, were some who determined to place beyond the reach of ruthless hands the sacred ark containing the tables of stone on which had been traced the precepts of the Decalogue. This they did. With mourning and sadness they secreted the ark in a cave where it was to be hidden from the people of Israel and Judah because of their sins, and was to be no more restored to them, that the sacred ark, that sacred ark is yet hidden. It has never been disturbed since it was secreted. Now, God called Ezekiel to follow as a prophet to the captives in Babylon, as you search the earlier chapters of Ezekiel, you will find that he describes the various stages through which the glory of the Lord passed as it left the doomed temple and the city of Jerusalem. In the first chapter, Ezekiel was given a vision of God's throne room in heaven in which he states that he had seen, verse 28, the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And again in the third chapter, verse 23, he says that he sees the glory of the Lord, so he knows what he's talking about. Then in chapter 5, he is given a message concerning the sins and abominations of God's people and of the Jewish leaders who were defiling God's earthly sanctuary in Jerusalem so that he might understand why Jerusalem had been destroyed. In chapter 8, Ezekiel is then transported in vision to old Jerusalem where he beholds the glory of the Lord, verse 4 of the 8th chapter, 
in spite of the continued abominations, God had not yet caused his glory to fully depart out of the sanctuary. But as you turn to chapter 9, you read that the glory of the Lord had begun to leave the sanctuary. Verse 3, the glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. Then in chapter 10, the glory departs a little further, for it has left the covering cherub and now stands over the threshold of the door. And then looking down over the courtyard, it passes over the doomed city. This is clearly revealed in the 19th verse of chapter 10. The glory of God of Israel was over them above. Oh, how patient and merciful is our God. How reluctant to remove his glory from a rebellious people. Nevertheless, slowly and surely, the glory of God was being removed in stages. Now this brings us to chapter 11 of Ezekiel, where God shows Ezekiel in detail why the glory of God was departing. Here he has given a view of some 25 priests, which were first mentioned in Ezekiel 8:16, And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, before the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun. Now these men were participating in the abominations of sun worship, and they were doing it right within the sanctuary of God. Now please keep this in mind as we proceed, for it is so important, for we shall consider how Sunday worship will again infiltrate within the very midst of God's people in our day before the end comes. Then finally in chapter 11, <clears throat> Because of this sun worship, we read, and I'm reading verse 23 of chapter 11, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. This is exactly as we read in Desire of Ages, page 829, how the glory of God departed from the temple, and then the city, and finally from the people, never to return. For you see, the ark of the mercy seat had been taken away and hid in a cave. Because they had, in a sense, collectively sinned away their day of grace in dishonoring the holy Sabbath by following the pagan customs of sun worship. And never after this did the holy Shekinah of glory ever illuminate the most holy. Nevertheless, God did not utterly forsake his people. We read in Ezekiel 13, 23, 4, 
ye shall see no more vanity, nor divine divinations. For I will deliver my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Thus God promised in due time to deliver again his faithful, a small remnant, out of the hands of the oppressors. So, after the captivity was over, and the temple rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the remaining old men who were still alive and had seen the glory of God once displayed in the most holy temple, now wept <clears throat> at the lesser grandeur of the second temple. Why? For the Ark of the Covenant was missing. <clears throat> In Desire of Ages, page 52, we read, The Shekinah had departed from the sanctuary. But notice, a greater glory had been promised. I read on. The Shekinah had departed from the sanctuary, but in the child of Bethlehem was veiled the glory before which angels bow. Thus was fulfilled in the words of Haggai the prophet, the second chapter, verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. But so few recognized the glory in Jesus Christ when he came. Yet he was God's Son, veiled in human flesh, come down to his very own, but his own received him not. Once again, the glory of God was to depart from his people and from a city which was again to be destroyed. As with the first temple, the second withdrawal of God's glory was not abrupt, but gradual conducted in patience and in reluctance. I am reading Desire of Ages 626. Alas, for those who knew not the time of their visitation, slowly and regretfully Christ left forever the precincts of the temple and the angel of mercy was about to fold her wings never to return to the doomed city. Reading on in Desire of Ages 629, Israel as a nation had divorced herself from God. The natural branches of the olive tree were broken off. Looking for the last time upon the interior of the temple, Jesus said with mournful pathos, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hitherto he had called the temple his father's house. But now, as the Son of God should pass out from those walls, God's presence would be withdrawn forever from the temple built to his glory.
Henceforth, its ceremonies would be meaningless, its services a mockery. Even after Christ's cruel crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus led his disciples to the crest of Olivet. Jesus, the very embodiment of his Father's glory, lingered before departure, as did the Shekinah of old. Once again the divine glory departed gradually, reluctantly. Desire of Ages 829. The holy Shekinah, in departing from the first temple, had stood upon the eastern mountain as if loath to forsake the chosen city. So Christ stood upon Olivet with yearning heart overlooking Jerusalem. Christ, in his coming kingly glory, will not again stand on Mount of Olives until he returns after the thousand years of the millennium. In Zechariah 14, verse 4 and 5, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And the Lord thy God shall come, and all the saints with him. Now with this background of understanding, we are now ready for our lesson for today. And I would be unfaithful to my calling if I did not call your attention to the failure of Israel of old for the past is to be repeated in our present church, and similar results will follow. Please keep in mind that when I quote words from the Lord's servant, they are not my words. Let me beg you to lay aside all preconceived ideas and let inspiration speak to you. What is God's glory in our day? Inspiration gives us the answer. Review and Herald, March 24, 1891. The glory of God is the piety of its members, for there is the hiding of Christ's power. But I ask you, will piety totally depart from the people of God? In the end time, again, we find the answer in Manuscript 32, 1896. Quote, A new life is coming from heaven and taking procession of all of God's people. Now note, but divisions will come in the church. Two parties will be developed. Unquote. Now that's quite a statement. And as you read on, you will find that one group will contend for the faith, and the other party will leave the light and the glory of God and depart from the faith. In Selected Messages 2, page 378, 
God never forsakes people or individuals until they forsake him. Now, I like that. Isn't that a God for you? Then he continues, she continues, Outward opposition will not cause the faith of God's people who are keeping his commandments to become dim. But then she says, The neglect to bring purity and truth into practice will grieve the Spirit of God and weaken them because God is not in their midst. What a statement. I'm reading on. Eternal corruption will bring the denunciations of God upon this people as it did upon Jerusalem. The least transgression of God's law brings guilt upon the transgressor and without earnest repentance and forsaking of sin, he will surely become an apostate. We do not keep ourselves in the faith and not only advocate with pen and voice the commandments of God, but keep them every one, not violating a single precept knowingly. Then weakness and ruin will come upon us. Now that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? But thank God, a faithful group will remain faithful to God. I'm reading volume 5, the testimony, page 209. The little company who are standing in the light Ah, they are like the ten virgins who alone had the inward piety. And we have been cautioned over and over not to be content with superficial piety. Sons and Daughters of God, page 317. So we read in volume 5, page 212, It is with reluctance that the Lord withdraws his presence from those who have been blessed with great light. And in Manuscript 32, 1896, from those who have rejected truth, the light, that's the glory, of God has departed. Spiritual declension in modern Israel is not something that has suddenly appeared among us. It has been long in developing. Today we express concern over the ecumenicalism, but it was making inroads a hundred years ago, as you read in volume 5, page 76. God has in all ages had his faithful few. There is no scriptural evidence that he has withdrawn his glory from them. But like in the days of the first temple, there were the faithful few, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and a small group of others who were faithful. But remember, they were never in the majority. 
They lived amid the glory of God in their piety. So also in the day of Christ there were a faithful few, as you will find also in the days of the martyrs during the Dark Ages. And God will have a little company today who will become evident in his church triumphant. God's light and glory will never depart from them. Praise God. But this is not so with the majority. Again in volume 5, page 136, when the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. At this time we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. Those are mighty words. Think of it. The majority of God's professed people will prove to be base metal and will forsake God's people and walk no more with them. Volume 5, page 212. Those who have been regarded as worthy and righteous prove to be ringleaders in apostasy, unquote. That's a most saddening prospect. Now, while Seventh-day Adventists correctly recognize Ezekiel 9 as describing the soon-coming sealing of God's people, few, it seems, very few, have studied chapter 8, describing the abominations which Ezekiel saw taking place in Jerusalem, his church. And these abominations actually took place just prior to the departure of God's glory, for they had been going on for years. So focus with me on the most brazen abomination set forth in verse 16, that of open sun worship. Here is a clear type of Sunday worship veneration in honor of the counterfeit Sabbath Sunday. And I am amazed by letter and telephone to hear of what happened in our churches during this last Easter time. I'm going to just read one letter I received. I'm reading. In my early years, <clears throat> I can never remember hearing the word Easter mentioned from the pulpit. Yet last Sabbath, Pastor Blank announced this is the beginning of the Passion Week. The what? And let us remember Good Friday. What? There were Easter lilies and a wooden cross on the platform, and some of the children marched down the center aisle with palms and placed them at the foot of the cross. 
Today our pastor was in the height of his glory with his two sessions of the pageant that he supervises each year in which the group of people wander about the neighborhood to places depicting various aspects of the Passion Week. Can you imagine? Here are God's people doing the same as you will find all through Europe and South America during the Passion Week, going uh, to the places uh, depicting the Stations of the Cross. This is Catholicism. Then I read on. It seems to me that this is what I used to hear in, from our Catholic friends as they talked about going and doing the Stations of the Cross. And then he continues of another nearby church. Pastor Blank sent out a letter to his members several weeks ago informing them that on April 5, noon to 2 p.m., the various pastors of the local churches, including a Catholic priest, would be at the Blank Church to celebrate Good Friday and requested all the members to be present. Here we see our church going into the pagan customs, the Easter sunrise services. It's amazing. Many of them sponsored by our churches in the out of doors where the people wait the arise of the sun over the horizon to begin their worship service like the pagans as they worshiped the sun. Now I am well aware that there are theologians among us who claim that we are not honoring the sun god in doing this. They believe that they are honoring the resurrection of Jesus at the very moment he arose from the grave. But let me tell you something. They have failed to read their Bibles which teach that Jesus arose very early while it was yet dark and that the women who reached the tomb at sunrise, learning that he had already risen and departed. You read of this in John 20, verse 1 and 2. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, we cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark into the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Remember, this is, it was still dark. The tomb has been opened. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. You know, since Sunday sacredness is to be our final test. How sad to see Seventh-day Adventists professing to keep God's law and joining in this form of ecumenicalism. This is nothing but modern Baal worship. And books now are being published on our presses preparing God's people to keep Sunday such as the book Be Unbelief by Jack C. Criera who states on page 185 that the Sabbath or Sunday is not the final test. Listen closely as I read, quote, The issue then in the final conflict 
will not be between two groups of Christians or even between two rest days, but between two opposing methods of salvation. Of course, he's talking there about the new theology against legalism, that is, keeping the law. Our general conference president teaches the same false concepts as taught by Jack C. Kiera. Listen closely. I'm quoting from his book, We Still Believe, by Robert S. Falkenberg, page 64. Quote, If we consider Sabbath-keeping a requirement for salvation, we have turned the commandment on its head. Unquote. Beloved, Sabbath-keeping is a requirement of God's salvation. This new theology is constantly avoiding the word obedience and preaching instead unconditional love. In the plan of salvation, there is no such thing as unconditional love. The conditions for eternal life is perfect obedience. See Steps to Christ, page 62. There will be even among us hirelings and wolves in sheep clothing who will persuade the flock of God to sacrifice unto other gods before the Lord. Youth who are not established, rooted and grounded in the truth will be corrupted and drawn away by the blind leaders of the blind and the ungodly. Despisers that wander and perish who despise the sovereignty of the ancient of the days and place on the throne a false god, the idle Sabbath. These will be the agents in Satan's hands to corrupt the faith. Manuscript 6, 1889. Be more clearly stated. And we have been told in Testimonies B, number 7, page 40, the Sabbath would be lightly regarded. Never forget God's counsel. Letter 11, 1890. The Lord has shown me clearly that the image of the beast will be formed before probation closes, for it is to be the great test for the people of God by which their eternal destiny will be decided. This is the test that the people of God must have before they are sealed." Unquote. Then in volume 5 of the testimonies, and I'm going to make statements and I'll give the page, God will allow deceitful hazels to come in our midst to be a scourge to his people. Page 79. But he will also not entrust the keeping of his flock to the proud and unfaithful shepherds. Page 80. The time is not far distant when the test, the Sunday law, will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Page 81. And she's speaking in the church. Let us take notice that all these events transpire close to the time period when the loud cry will go forth and the judgment of the living will proceed. This is the time when the glory of the Lord will have left the majority of God's people, that is, the unfaithful majority.
Many leaders that we have regarded for their brilliancy will then go out in darkness, and clouds of chaff will be blown away from the church when we thought all along that they were looking at a piles of rich wheat. Page 81. Multitudes of false brethren will be cut down as cumbers of the ground. Page 81. The end result of all of this cleansing of the camp will be that a little company of faithful will remain. And I find no evidence in my study of these pages that God will have withdrawn his glory from his pious ones. Another thing to remember is that there will be no united church composed of wheat and tares during the outpouring of the seven last plagues, for the unfaithful will hardly be hiding with the purified church. After all, the slaughter term of Ezekiel is wholly symbolic. No swords or guns will be used. When one receives the mark of the beast, it will be a sentence to eternal death, forever consigning a former believer in the truth to be lost forever. How sad. This slaughter is depicted in Ezekiel chapter 8 to 9 as beginning with the ancient men, those who were serving as the guardians of God's people, for they are likened to dumb dogs that would not bark to warn the people of the coming danger. Now, we should remember that there are three weepings in the Bible over Jerusalem representing the church. First, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was weeping over Jerusalem shortly before its first destruction. Secondly, Jesus wept over Jerusalem a few years before its second destruction. And a third weeping over Jerusalem, God's remnant church, will take place in our day in accordance with the sighing and crying foretold in Ezekiel 9, just before the sealing of God's people. It will be done by a faithful few within the church. Volume 5, page 210. The seal of God, we read, will never be placed upon the foreheads of those who are not ready let me read it to you. The seal of God will be placed upon the foreheads of those only who sigh and cry for all the abominations. Page 212. And where is this sighing and crying to take place? I'm reading. That sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the church. Volume 3, page 267. How thankful we should be to God for this following information. Selected Messages 2, page 380. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains, while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. The chaff separated from the precious wheat. 
This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place, unquote. And so the chaff, composed of the sinners, the tares, the rebellious, the unfaithful, will be sifted out, praise God, a terrible ordeal, leaving but a little company as a nucleus for the church triumphant. But God's glory will not be with the majority. Volume 5, page 136. The majority forsake us, unquote. Church after church, in other words, described as company after company will drop the standard of truth to desert the Lord's army, volume 8, page 41. But thank God, the remnant, a small company, does not fall. We have seen the promise that if we constantly behold God's glory, we read, we can become changed into the sons, that's the S-O-N, into the son's image from the glory to glory, from character to character, till we become like that which we adore. Oh, I like that. That's found in manuscript 8A, 1888. We can become like Jesus. So let us conclude this study by reading once more Ezekiel 8:16. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they worshipped the sun. And this, I'm sorry to say, will happen again in our church. Listen to this carefully. Letter H, 31A, 1894. The Lord reads the heart as an open book. The men who are not connected with God have done many things after the imagination of their evil hearts. The Lord declares concerning them, they have turned me their backs and not their faces, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. Then these words, We are amid the perils of the last days. The time will soon come when the prophecy of Ezekiel 9 will be fulfilled to the very letter." Unquote. So let us have absolutely nothing to do in any way with this ecumenical movement that is being encouraged by the leaders of our church. We read by divine inspiration in Review and Herald, March 18, 1884, in churches, that's speaking of ours, and in large gatherings in the open air, Ministers will urge upon the people the necessity of keeping the first day of the week. That sounds unbelievable today, but it is true. 
we have more to fear from within than from without. And so I tell you, terrible things are just ahead for God's remnant. We have seen nothing yet. Be sure that we are living within the glory of God each day and keeping his commandments by his grace. Let it not be said of any of us, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. Let us pray. O loving God, as you withdraw your spirit from the majority within the church, Oh, please, God, pour out your fullness of a power upon the remnant few to sustain them and keep them in the coming crisis. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Oh, oh, oh.